0: Hello and welcome back to Series 3 of Launch, Alan Inovery's careers podcast. My name is Bianca Vasilake, and today's episode is Pro Bono 101. Joining me to tell us more about ANO's pro bono work, as well as do a deep dive into a couple of our pro bono projects, I have Aditi Kapoor, one of ANO's pro bono managing lawyers, and Francis Beddo a newly qualified associate in litigation, who also did as a convent as a trainee in the Pro Bono team. Thank you both for being here today. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, really excited. Aditi, starting with the basics, could you give us an overview of the ANO Pro Bono practice? Sure. Our pro bono
1: practice, which is obviously all our legal work, sits within the firm's wider pro bono and community investment offering. And essentially, that entire programme combines the firm's legal, non-legal and fundraising resource for the benefit of our pro bono clients and partners. For the pro bono practice itself, our primary thematic focus is, I guess, access to justice and finance. And then also there's access to education and employment. We've got a global remit managed by lawyers in the central team, including me, working closely with our champions network across all our offices and really our role is to scope and build and deliver projects and also to source matters. The work takes many forms. You might be advising children on their citizenship rights and assisting them to exercise those rights in law under supervision from an immigration lawyer. You might be advising on the corporate aspects of a charity merger. You might be working on a social finance transaction or you might be conducting some legal research across a range of jurisdictions on behalf of a human rights organisation to help with its advocacy work. So Plenty of things that you might Quite be involved a broad range. in. Absolutely,
0: yeah. How does this fit within ANO's departments and its broader strategy?
1: One of our really key objectives in the pro bono team is to help embed a culture where PBCI work is at the core of what we do. Why is PBCI work? Sorry, I should have said so. <laughs> pro bono and community investment work. It's really supposed to be at the core of what we do at both a practice group and an individual team level. The main reason that we do this work is to meet the needs of our clients and communities, but there's actually a much wider business case that's been established for some time that really takes in the value of pro bono to the firm. So from a learning and development perspective, from a recruitment and retention perspective, but also increasingly from a wellbeing perspective, because it's really important to have opportunities to volunteer and, and that's been shown to help people enjoy their working life. I think it's also important to say that we're really aligned and increasingly aligned with um, other departments such as diversity and inclusion. And we're always looking for synergies between our pro bono work on, say, gender, racial discrimination and justice and disability discrimination, LGBTQ discrimination, because it's a real opportunity to connect our people who are invested in these issues with opportunities to contribute towards progress in the wider community and push the needle in that way as well. And then finally, I guess, our advanced delivery and solutions work as well. And that work stream is actually quite a good thing for grads to look at in terms of the wider a value proposition. And for us, we work quite closely with legal tech and with A&O Consulting to make sure that we're enhancing client deliverables and leveraging technology where appropriate, just so that we can provide more holistic pro bono advice. So there is a big intersection between our work and and the work of the wider firm.
0: And that leads in very nicely with my next question, which is what are the typical pro bono opportunities for trainees? And to what extent, if at all, do they vary from department to department? Because you mentioned how pro bono pretty much touches every department. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start this one, but
1: Frances has gone through the process much more recently than I have, so she can pick up. <laughs> yeah, happy to jump in. <laughs> but um, I'd say probably there are loads of different opportunities. I wouldn't say that there are any typical trainee ones as such, because you're presented with the options to get involved with quite a big range of work. It could be advice work for individuals across a number of our programmes, be that casework, what we call end to end casework or one off legal advice. You might equally be doing some transactional work on a big sort of social investment matter or you might be doing some human rights research. So you'll be doing the heavy lifting on that, we should say. But where it might differ is probably where we're leveraging our commercial practice for the benefit of our non-profit clients, so IP advice or employment. And actually, that's where we're quite well placed to deliver really high quality work because we're just doing our day job, but for a different client. And Francis, you've done a few things like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. from the perspective of a more recent training, <laughs> um, I think it can really depend on what department you were in because there are extra opportunities depending on what kind of work that department does on a day to day basis and really sort of sits well within that team. So, for example, if you were in an IP seat, you might work on a charity trademark registration, for instance, or do some reputation management work. Okay. And I know that the employment team also does a lot of work with charity clients on employment contracts, for instance. When I sat in litigation as a trainee, I was helping on an arbitration for a charity charity which in basically every respect was identical to a normal arbitration, except for the fact the charity client wasn't paying our fees. And actually, as the trainee in that situation, it gives you some really good opportunities to take on extra responsibility and go a bit further than you usually can do on a fee-earning matter, mainly just because when the client's not paying, the team can afford to be a bit less fee-conscious. So, for okay. instance, I did the first draft of our statement of defence, did a first draft of a witness statement, all of which usually sits more with the associates in the team. So it was not only Really interesting work, but also a really good way for me to actually build my skills in that specific department.
0: Okay. And what are the categories of pro bono work that trainees can be involved in? Because I have seen emails going around and I have been involved myself. There's education, there's employment, and we have various projects as well. But could you give just a breakdown of the key areas?
1: The access to justice work probably is something that trainees can have an opportunity to be involved in from the outset. And that when I say access to justice, I mean sort of access to justice for individuals. And there are probably currently, as as we record, about eight or nine opportunities that you have as a trainee you can be involved in. And mentioned earlier that that might take the form of doing some advice that's not face to face, but sort of through a tech platform, through looking at employment rights for new or expectant mothers, for example, so maternity rights type work. You might be doing face-to-face client assistance for somebody on our family reunion project which we're going to talk about in a bit more detail. So in terms of the categories of work, I'd say probably advice for individuals advice to charities and non profits. And that could be really anything from corporate commercial type advice that we would give to our own clients, our own commercial clients, or I guess stuff that is more aligned with the normal output of our nonprofit organizations themselves. So it might be that we're helping them with research to leverage for their policy and advocacy work, for example. So those are sort of the three broad categories. But we also do a lot of work on the social finance side. And so actually that's really where our transactional lawyers are able to make a a big difference.
2: I can jump in with an answer if that helps as well. So I think Aditi has set out the different types of pro bono really clearly. And I just think from a trainee perspective what you want to work on is basically there for you and that's what's one of the things that's so fantastic about the opportunities on offer that I've always had a really keen interest in human rights work so I was looking out when I joined the firm for chances to sit in departments that did sort of human rights focused pro bono work like the litigation team but also opportunities just get sent around by email to the wider trainee distribution list, and you can put your hand up for any number of those, depending on your capacity at the time, (laughs) which is obviously a factor. But um, I've worked on a real range of things, looking at, for instance, suicide decriminalisation work. I've looked at child refugee protection, and there are lots of different charities that have different focuses. So if you, for instance, are really interested in mental health, there is often a chance to align some of the pro bono work you do with that wider focus.
1: I think one of the things to add is also that we are a, a banking firm and we have a huge amount of transactional capability, which we've been over the last 10 years, but even I'd say probably within the last five in particular, been able to leverage for social finance transactions. So that might be kind of microfinance traditionally, but also acting for syndicates of investors on large scale transactions where the beneficiaries are essentially either nonprofits or social enterprises. And so that's also a really, really big part of our work.
0: And I think in my experience, in addition to the legal work you can do on the pro bono side, there's also a lot of mentoring and coaching that you can do for different schools and pupils and students. And I found those opportunities very rewarding. And also we have a few programs where you can run a case beginning to end. As a trainee, you, as Francis mentioned, you do a lot of the drafting yourself. You do the document collection, you read everything, you do the first draft, you liaise with the court, which on bigger cases, of course, the work is split out across several associates and trainees. You really get the experience of what being an associate would be like, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And especially in relation to client management as well, I think you get a lot more direct contact with a client than you would do as a trainee on a matter normally. And it can really help build those soft skills that actually are so key once you do qualify. There's definitely something around ownership as well, because I think that's
1: one of probably the the hardest things to flex your muscles with as a trainee. Because sometimes if you are working on a massive transaction or a massive case, you're not necessarily the sort of one who has conduct of it. But I think we sort of encourage our trainees from the get go to sort of take this on as, as their case and their matter. And it does mean that they sort of take on a level of responsibility and, you know, apply a level of rigor that I think really sets them up for the next stage.
0: It's quite different when you do the client interview and take the notes and are thinking, oh, did I actually get all the information I need to draft this piece of advice? Completely, yeah. Um, so thinking about that and the opportunities that you have as a trainee, I was wondering how do these opportunities change after a qualification and to what extent there is an opportunity to continue the pro bono work that you did as a trainee? We love it when people do. And that's that's <laughs>
1: definitely the main objective. Most of the matters and most of the programmes are basically staffed with a mix of trainees and associates to give people the opportunity to move on from doing the sort of trainee tasks on a particular matter to then sort of leading it when they start as an associate. So you might, for example, do a disability benefits appeal and do a client interview, and perhaps be there supporting the associate to draft the submissions and the rest of it. But then once you qualify, you would be leading that case and be able to represent somebody at the tribunal. So there are lots of opportunities for you to sort of step up. And, you know, Francis has got a really good one. <laughs> good example. <laughs>
2: Thanks, Aditi. You teed me up well there. Yeah, I actually sat within the pro bono team on a secondment in my fourth seat as a trainee. And it was great because not only did I get to spend six months really focusing in on casework and human rights research and the projects that I found so interesting in my other seats, I also got a chance to actually get really involved in the strategic side of the pro bono team. And that meant sort of helping to scope new clinics and work on building up new opportunities for the firm. And one of them was, as we can come on to talk to you a bit more about, is a project we would do with a refugee legal support, which is a charity that works with people in Greece and across Europe to help them either seek asylum or reunite with family members in the UK. And so I was involved in the kind of early stages of scoping what our role would be as a firm and building the relationship with that, with RLS, the NGO client. Okay. And then As I've moved on to being an associate, I've actually been able to take forward this project as one of the co-leads. So I now run that on a day-to-day basis, which means pushing out opportunities to our volunteers, joining regular calls with RLS to talk about feedback and how the cases are progressing. And so it's been a really great moment to sort of see the work as a trainee laying the foundation now come to fruition. And really I have such a sense of ownership of something that I've seen from start to well, not quite finished, but <laughs> midway through.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully, not finished very soon. <laughs> hopefully, we'll be ongoing. And I think this is the right moment, really, to tell our listeners more about the Family Reunion Project and the Greece Pro Bono Collaborative. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. We'll give you sort of an overview of, of both of them and then we'll kind of talk about each in a bit, a bit more detail. So I think the Greece Pro Bono Collaborative is the, is the sort of the project that started earlier. It's the main sort of objectives are to increase the capacity of European lawyers in Lesbos, which is actually the main organisation operating, main legal advice provider operating on the Greek islands and now also on the mainland in Greece. The idea really is to increase their capacity by helping their Greek asylum lawyers with interview preparation for asylum seekers who are about to undergo status determination interviews in Greece. And the idea is really to improve their chances of being able to seek international protection. And the other one, so the more recent one, the Family Reunion Project, is around trying to actually mobilise legal aid support or legal aid lawyer capacity in the UK. So working, as Francis said, with refugee legal support. And the idea is to process family reunion applications. Most of our clients, I think, are based in Greece, but increasingly other countries. In Europe too, and they're trying to rejoin family who legally reside here in the UK. That's both of them in uh, a snapshot, a little snapshot oh, yes. of, of them both. Yeah.
0: So, how and why did ANO become involved in these projects?
1: It won't have escaped people's attention that forced displacement in Europe reached crisis point in 2015 but it's really still a live issue and immigration and asylum advice are really highly specialised and regulated areas in the UK so I think we've been looking for a while for the right opportunity to make a pro bono intervention that actually works that is actually useful and to ensure that we're sort of led by the experts and i think the real value of both of these projects is that they're collaborative so it's not just a O, but actually a number of law firms that are involved in both of these projects and obviously led by the sort of expert non-profits in their field and i think it sort of really underscores the value of law firm collaboration on pro bono work which is something that's happening more and more at the moment and this was probably a key incentive for us to get involved so i should say that the other firms are um <laughs> <laughs> Oric, Ashurst, uh, White & Case, uh, they're members on both projects, and then Dentons and Charles Russell Speechley's are our partners on the Greece collaborative. Whilst Reed Smith and Simmons and Simmons are also part of Family Reunion. Quite a
0: big. Cross firm collaboration, absolutely, I
1: say. yeah, completely. And I think the thing about collaborative projects is that they really enable us to increase the size of the volunteer pool, and as well as the sort of the project funding pot and the management resource. So Francis has alluded to calls that we're doing every month or so with the other pro bono council, and that kind of thing just means that we're able to make a more sustainable, manageable commitment over time to really help scale the organization's efforts in both senses.
2: And it's helpful for us too because we can share feedback. And pool resources and and actually it really helps me as a you know individual lawyer to increase my network across different firms who have similar kinds of interests in these kind of areas.
0: Definitely true. And I know Francis, you mentioned that you were involved in
2: the beginning of the
0: scoping process. So could you talk more about that in the context of these two projects?
2: Yeah, I think to be honest, Aditi is probably best place because she's the <laughs> she's the manager. Thanks. But she um, <laughs> will recall that what well, part of the scoping process is actually working out the limits of our role, okay. because we're really keen to make sure that we aren't taking projects or work away from legal aid firms that actually should be earning a living doing this kind of work. And like Aditi said, they are the specialists, they have the really key skills and the regulatory requirements to actually do immigration advice. So I think some of the scoping is actually defining the limits of what A&O can sensibly offer and what we should be offering in this context. So we had a conversation quite early on around whether or not we would be helping with just providing advice on legal aid funding part of the project. So there are two stages essentially to a family reunion application. The first is that we need to apply for exceptional case funding from the legal aid agency because family reunion doesn't fall within the natural scope of what legal aid has been mandated to cover. Although in most cases, it does tend to be granted for situations like this. And then the second phase of the project is to actually get the family reunion application submitted to the UK authorities. And that's an entry clearance application, which basically has the details of the person applying and the relationship they have with someone legally within in the UK already. And the second part of that project is really a piece of work that we would be keen for legal aid firms to take on if possible, because they're the ones with the skills and they're the ones who get the fees for this. So we have had conversations as a sort of wider group about where we can draw the line between those two sections. And at the moment, we really try to focus on just the exceptional case funding part and then to package up a really pre-prepared case as much as possible with all the evidence gathered so that a legal aid firm can then take that on. And it makes financial sense for them to put in the sort of amount of time that their fees really allow them to do. But yeah, we're keeping those sorts of conversations going as well, because as the situation changes in Europe and also developments in the UK immigration policy, it can be difficult to find legal aid firms with capacity to take these things on. So I think part of being part of a collaborative is that we can be flexible and we have a wide pool of resources so we can scale up or scale down the project as needed.
0: And speaking of resources and the scope of the role for the firms that are part of the collaboration, what can the fee earners that become involved with the project do and what are their key tasks?
1: So they tend to lead on the individual applications. I mean, Bar Francis, who obviously runs alongside, she's
0: the boss. (laughs) And then everyone, yeah, that's what I get
1: people to write to me at emails. (laughs) They sort of actually lead on the individual applications, and so that's the value of being able to build collaborations between law firms of you know many hundreds of lawyers. You're basically able to take a sort of discrete application that is fairly easy in the circumstances to be able to train people on, and then they can go away and do that many times over, and you just end up with a sense of well you you end up with a good sample size for data collection I think is the other thing to mention because a lot of the organizations that we work with say that we know this is a problem but we actually need numbers to prove that it's a problem so that we can then take it forward and and be able to advocate on the issue and shift the needle that way and so that is where I think sometimes people say it's just the one case but actually as part of a greater whole across many firms if you extrapolate the outcomes there's a sort of dual purpose in, in what we're doing.
0: Okay, that's all incredibly interesting. And in terms of wanting to make a difference, to what extent does the pro bono work count towards the infamous billable hours? It does. It counts. (laughs) It all
1: counts, actually. So pro bono legal hours all count towards your chargeable targets. I think the key point to note is that basically pro bono work is client work. We end up taking on well we have client conduct obligations in the same way as we do for our commercial matters in relation to client work and so actually we can't be beholden entirely to capacity constraints if we have committed to see a client matter through from start to finish then we need the firm infrastructure has to support that and we need a policy that basically enables and gives people the license to take on this work and to do it well.
2: That's very reassuring and I would say though there's Still one limit um, in place. <laughs> only one. Yeah. Which, is, just the <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> which is, is relevant to trainees only. And that is that if you don't sit in a contentious department, so that's a litigation team, basically, as part of your training contract, then A&O thinks it's still really valuable to get contentious experience. So although they don't really force you to take any particular track with your pro bono work, they do say that it's worth having... 40 hours of contentious experience under your belt before you qualify, just because it gives you that client direct access that we've talked about before and really gives you a chance to have to think critically, stand on your own two feet in a matter a bit more. And all of that sets you up brilliantly as an associate. So there are a whole menu of different options as a trainee and you get presentation at the start of the training contract that takes you through all the different opportunities. might
0: I add, the bono team always (laughs) makes sure to inform everyone of the opportunities, which I think is really important.
2: Yeah, completely. And I think it, it helps structure your training contract a bit if you know you have this 40 hour requirement and you've got four seats in which to take it or potentially three seats if you might be on a client's a for your fourth so you can think quite strategically about in my first seat I'd like to try a legal advice clinic because I you know want to get experience of sitting in front of a client and answering their questions and trying to think on my feet Or, as I did, I was really interested in mental health, so I was looking out for a project that basically supported that interest. So when one came along in my second seat, I snapped it up and (laughs) did some research. So I think it's actually a really helpful way of giving you a flavour of all the different things the firm offers, as much as, you know, the training contract shows you different fee earning departments, pro bono gives you a real insight into the wider strategic focuses of the firm.
0: Very true. Thank you both for these wonderful insights. And now moving on to another fun, another, I'm saying this intentionally, (laughs) fun part of the episode, which is the Would You Rather game. We will only have 30 seconds to deliberate. So choose very carefully is all I'll say. So the first question is, I'm going to make this a funny one. Oh, God. (laughs) Would you rather always have an annoying song stuck in your head? Or always have an itch you can't reach. Oh, that is, that is a funny <laughs> one. It's really hard,
1: given that I can actually think of an annoying song already. <gasps> oh, <okay. laughs> What's the annoying song? I have an 18 month old, so it's Baby Shark. Any of <laughs> yeah, that is painful.
0: <laughs> so, oh. would you rather have that or an itch you can't reach? Oh, no, definitely the
1: song
2: over the itch, don't you think? I think even Baby Shark would probably take it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, next. That was quite an easy. We also had a consensus there. <laughs> Let's see if the next one is a bit trickier. Would you rather star in a Star Wars or a Marvel film?
2: Oh, that's hands down Star Wars. Sorry for jumping in. A DC. <laughs> I don't need to debate. That. I was actually going to say Marvel. So <gasps>
0: oh, we well. have di- why? why? <laughs> yeah. So uh francis
2: why star wars i mean my
0: other than the best franchise ever well made, obviously but uh, that yes. does go without saying i think my
2: family's religion is probably star wars my brother's <laughs> called luke and it's <laughs> sort of
0: fair enough how about you Aditi? Oh I, just think, I mean
1: superheroes over over star wars surely no you get to fly around in
2: a cape i don't it's know I'd, cool. I'd take a lightsaber
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah Brilliant. Well, thank you both for being here. It's been a pleasure <laughs> and hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks yeah, it was great. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed series three of Launch, Alan Inova's careers podcast. Please make sure to follow our updates on social media and graduate recruitment website.